Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Fagala, and I'm excited because we're back. We've been gone for uh, almost four weeks here. So we had a series that we, we decided not to podcast. We're starting back with a series that I, I hope you'll be excited about. We sort of talked about, you know, what are some sh- subjects we have not covered in a while, and we kept coming back to the Old Testament. It's very easy just to focus on the New Testament. We even hear of kind of being red-letter Christians, and I, and I think those are uh, it's a good intention behind that concept, but there's just a wealth of knowledge to be found in the Old Testament, uh, things that point to Jesus, things that point to our future hope, uh, and it's the beginning of the story. So I think it's important to study those things and to know those things and not just know them on a Sunday school level, let's say, but really dive into them deeply and learn more about them. So for the next seven weeks, we are going to study the Torah or the Pentateuch, and that's the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Today, we're going to split the first half of Genesis not really the first half, but the first section, let's say, chapters 1 through 11. Next week, we'll finish up the rest of Genesis and then move on through that. It's going to be David Flatt that's teaching us today. I know David is very excited about this topic, and we've worked together on planning this. Very excited. Sorry for the long intro. It's going to be awesome. Here's David with Genesis 1 through 11. All right, good morning. Glad everybody's here this morning. Daylight savings time, and it's raining, so if you made it to church, you get like a you get two stickers on your little t- attendance chart. Um, but seriously, I'm glad that you're here this morning. Um, we're going to start what seems on the surface to maybe like kind of a boring, unexciting series. We're going to go through the Torah. And so what does the Torah mean? Well, that's a, a fancy word for law. And really what that covers is the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And um, today we're going to try to cover the first 11 chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11. So I thought this would maybe would be one of the easier lessons to teach in this series because it's a little shorter, just 11 chapters. Uh, the truth is, I think we do a whole series on Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, there's just so much that's going on. And what Kyle said I thought was also kind of my feeling about it. I probably think about Genesis 1 through 11 either in two ways. One, kind of like a Sunday school level, like these are stories. The point of the story is to, to be good or be nice or don't lie. Um, and I'm not saying that's wrong. It's, it's good to think about the stories that way. It's, it's part of why they're there. Um, the other level is maybe like on a, from like a scientific perspective. So could this be true and has this you know, teaching in Genesis 1 or Genesis 3 uh, fit in with modern science? And I think there's something to be said for some of that too. But the point of the text I think is so much greater uh, than kind of viewing it through either one of those two lenses. That's what I want to try to talk about this morning is what is the Holy Spirit trying to teach us through Genesis 1 through 11. Um, and so we'll, we'll see if we can come up with some answers to that. Does anybody know what this is? Yeah, it's the ceiling. Yeah. What, what, what was the name? It's at the Vatican, the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, Sistine Chapel. So this is the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And through like kind of getting ready this week, I did some reading on this. Uh, and it's amazing. We could do a whole class on like this. Uh, we won't do that this morning. Uh, but there's, So right here in the middle, there's nine famous... A picture here. So Michelangelo painted this. It's not just a, I mean, a, it's amazing. But there are nine scenes from Genesis right up here, right in the middle, and they're really just really profound. I think theologically rich. And um, either Michelangelo was reading his Bible or he had someone counseling him about how to uh, depict some of this stuff. It's really amazing art. So if you're not doing anything this afternoon, you should at least Wikipedia the Sistine Chapel and read about uh, some of what's going on here. It's really incredible. So we'll, I'll show some, some of these pictures uh, like as we talk. 
uh, today. So what is the Torah? It's the first five books of Moses. Why is it sometimes called the five books of Moses? Two reasons. One, traditionally, it's been understood that Moses was the author. Um, and so that may or may not be true. I think, I think Moses was at least involved in putting the Torah together. So maybe he wrote some of it, kind of served as an editor for other parts of it. But maybe even more importantly than that, really the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is the story of Moses. So Genesis is all the backstory that makes the story of Moses matter. So where did Moses come from? What family is he in? Why are these people living in Egypt? That all, Genesis sets all that up, right? And then Exodus through Deuteronomy is really the story of the life of Moses. Him, receiving, him leading the Exodus, receiving the law, um, and then starting this new nation. So Torah is Hebrew for law or instruction. And I think this is important. So the Torah contains narrative. It's mostly story, right? So we think law, we think Ten Commandments. But most of the Torah, the, the Hebrew law, is not rules. Most of it is story. And so I think this is an important time to talk about like a distinction in kind of our Western 2018 modern, postmodern thinking and the way that the first readers would see the text, which is really going to be the main hurdle to getting out of the Torah, what God is meaning to communicate, is that we see the whole world through different eyes than the original readers would have seen. So I think a good, a good example of this is like polygamy, all right, so having multiple wives. So you, sometimes you'll hear when we're talking about marriage or divorce or what is marriage, even like kind of modern political debates, you'll hear somebody say, well, you know, God had a in the Old Testament, these men had all these wives, and so why are you so strict about the definition of marriage now? And so what that fails to see is the way that the, the Torah and Old Testament laws laid out. Often teaching isn't explicit, but it's taught through story, right? So if you go through Genesis, every time somebody's got multiple wives, what happens? It ends terrible. Like, it's a disaster. So you go, like, think about Abraham tries to have children with another wife, or you think about all three of the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of them were kind of flirting with multiple wives, and what happens? Their wives get in fights with each other. Their children start nations who war with each other. It's, it ends poorly. And so the teaching there is not explicit, but it's in the narrative. So the first readers of the text would see, oh, this is a bad pattern, so we won't follow this pattern. We'll follow the original pattern set out in, in Genesis 1 through 3. And so the Torah is the foundation of the Bible. So I think we understand the Torah so we can understand what the rest of the gospel message is, right? So if you miss kind of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the whole thing that's going on later in the Old Testament and in the New Testament doesn't make a lot of sense. So what do I mean by that? First is orientation. So this is one of the primary purposes of Genesis is to orient us to God, right? So it's written in a context that would see creation and creation myths from other traditions very differently. Multiple gods creating the world. A popular Near Eastern creation myth had the, the earth on the back of a turtle and two gods like were fighting with each other and the result was like the turtle exploded and that's the earth. So there's all Genesis is kind of speaking into a competitive view of what it, what nature is and what creation is. And so part of that is to orient us that behind nature there is an all-powerful loving God. That's one of the main points of Genesis 1 through 11. Nature is not random. Um, it was created by one God. So then there's divine purpose. So the Torah is wanting to teach us that in response to the fall, which we'll talk about, God promises Abram and his descendants, he promises them three things. He promises them descendants, 
land, and the whole world will be blessed through his people. And so Kyle is teaching next week, and so he'll kind of pick up on this. But this is really the story of the Bible, right? Is God finds this pagan guy named Abram wandering out in the desert under the stars and tells him, I'm going to bless you. Not because of anything Abram did, but God calls him and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you with three things. I'm going to bless you with land. So that's really the story of kind of the first half of the Old Testament. It's how God takes Abram, blesses him with land. The promised land, that's what all that's about. It's fulfilling this promise in Genesis 12. Then he says, I'm going to promise you with great descendants. Remember, Abram's like between like 85 and 95 years old. Old dude. His wife has not had any children. But he says, I'm going to promise you with, great, with a great people. Great. And so that's the story that we're going to get, pick up in Exodus, right? There's this huge nation of descendants of Abram, um, whose name is changed to Abraham, who are living in Egypt. And then finally, he's going to bless the whole world through Abraham's descendants. So what is that? What's well, the story of Jesus, right? That's how God blesses the whole world through the line of Abraham. That's, that's why it matters that Jesus comes from the family of Abraham. That's why all through the Bible, you have these weird chapters where it's like, Goodness gracious. So the Holy Spirit, you really thought it was important to, to uh, inspire this author to write a whole chapter that's nothing but like a family tree? Like that, that's the message you want to send to humanity? Why? Well, the reason that matters is because we're tracing the line of Jesus back to Abraham to fulfill this promise in Genesis 12. So why, the reason the promise in Genesis 12 is needed is because things go so bad in Genesis 1 through 11, which is what we're talking about this morning. So I, I'll tell you the bad news, and Kyle will start us off on the good news next week. And then finally, a big key in Genesis is theology and ethics. So out of God's character flows care for mankind and high standards for moral behavior. So again, this is kind of speaking in competitively with other traditions about creation and about who God is and about spiritual questions who would say things about moral character and God's care for mankind and what it means to live an ethical life that were radically different, right? So you'd have traditions that... um, that worshipped multiple gods with really like pagan sexual practices. And so Genesis is speaking into that culture and saying, no, it's not true. There's not multiple gods. There's one God who created the whole universe. And this God is not capricious. He's not um, unnecessarily angry or hateful. In fact, he is just, but he's also loving. And that's why he's called you to live not in an unholy pagan way, but in a uniquely holy way, right? So all that just kind of sets up um, what the Torah is about. Okay, so here's the verse, first, the first three verses of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This uh, one commentary I read said this is really the theme verse for the whole Torah. So the rest of the Torah is kind of fulfilling uh, this text here. So uh, this is God speaking to Abram out in the desert. He says, Go from your country to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So that's really the theme of what the Torah is. Okay, so I wish we didn't even have to do this, uh, talking about Genesis and science, because I think Genesis is not about science almost at all, right? It's just not the point of the text. But we live in a culture that frankly worships science, that, that, that finds our greatest kind of cultural authority is going to come from science and the lab and what we can show empirically. And of course I have a high view of science. It's basically what I do every day. It's kind of interacting at least at some level in that arena. But I, I think that it should be said that we place too high a value on um, science and what we can know from science. And even the presuppositions of science that you can find all truth 
from scientific discovery, that statement is not even a scientific statement, right? That's a philosophical statement. You can know all truth from science. Well, how, did you, how do you know that? You didn't learn that in, the, in a uh, science lab, right? So I love science. I appreciate it. And so I think living in the culture we live in, if we're going to talk about creation stories and how God made the earth, that, of course, interacts with science. So let's spend maybe five minutes talking about how Genesis and science, how we should think about Genesis 1 through 11 and a scientific worldview. So the first and most important thing I would say, as a Christian, we believe that all Holy Scripture is authoritative and true in what it teaches. So both of those are important. It's authoritative, meaning if, it, if, the, if Scripture teaches something that you disagree with or that isn't consistent with how you perceive other factors of life, the Scripture has the authority, right? So if you want to engage in some kind of behavior, whether it be having an affair or a life of drunkenness or whatever, you list it, and you really want to do that, you don't get to, you're not the authority of your life. So God speaking with His Holy Spirit through the inspired authors in Scripture is the authority, right? And so when we think about scientific questions, if the Bible, oh, and the other thing is that what it teaches, which is important. If the Bible teaches something, it's authoritative. It's not authoritative if you misunderstand that the Bible teaches something, right? Which happens often, right? But what the Bible actually teaches is authoritative. So if the Bible teaches something that's inconsistent with a scientific worldview, the authority isn't in the science lab. The authority is with the text. Second thing I would say is Genesis is not a science textbook. So you find people on kind of both sides of this argument, kind of the I mean, I, I love these people, so I don't want to, I'm not criticizing, but uh, maybe kind of a more fundamental, fundamentalist view of science and scripture. And you see people on the other extreme, maybe kind of an antagonistic, secular atheist, talking about these issues really from the same perspective. And what they want to do is they want to take the text of Genesis and pretend like it's a science textbook. So they'll say, well, day one, God created these things, so how does that fit in the evolutionary process? And if it does, then Genesis is true, and if it doesn't, then Genesis is false, right? And Moses, or whoever wrote Genesis 1, was not trying to answer anything like that. That's not the point of Genesis 1 at all. And so what I would say is, let's, let's give the text the respect to read from it what it's trying to communicate not what we wish it would communicate. Would I like to know the answers to some of these questions about exactly the details of, of creation and when God created what and how long it would take? Of course, that'd be awesome to know. But that is, they're not, Genesis is not interested in answering that question. So the third thing I would say, I think this is important that somebody says this in your church. This might be more helpful for like a, in, in youth group or maybe kids that are just starting college because you shouldn't think that um, just because science says something that it's certain that you, it has these like catastrophic implications for faith. But you should know from somebody that believes the Bible that an a honest and kind of first level view of, of science would indicate that the earth is probably old, an, an old earth, not an earth that was created like you know, five or six thousand years ago, much older than that. And there's probably some relationship between animals, right, and bet between species. So I think it's likely that uh, maybe like dogs and lions uh, probably have a common ancestor. And you could probably even extend it beyond that, right? And so what does that mean for evolution? How big is that? Well, 
Maybe we could talk about that later. That'd be a whole class. I think there's problems with the kind of consensus neo-Darwinian paradigm from a scientific perspective. I don't think genetic mutations occurring randomly can account for all like the diversity of life in the world. So there's problems with kind of just from a scientific perspective, the paradigm that we are working with right now in the in the scientific world. But but it's okay to say there's probably relationships between species, and the Earth is probably old from just a general view of science. But remember, science isn't our ultimate authority. So is it possible that the Earth is young? Well, of course. And you could think through all kinds of reasons why the Earth might appear to us from a scientific perspective to be older, why God may have even wanted it to appear older. I'm not sure that I am on that team, I'm on that side, on that debate. But um, the important point I'm making is somebody's not being dishonest when they say, I think the scientific evidence says the Earth is old. Right? Someone's also not being honest with saying, well, maybe there's a reason that the earth looks old, but it's actually young. Okay? So that's, a, I think, a kind of an important distinction as we think about science in, in Genesis. Okay, so I kind of already mentioned this, but here's the fourth principle. We should seek to understand what the Holy Spirit, through the, through the original authors, was intending to teach. So I think this kind of goes back to respect for the author, respect for the Holy Spirit. So if, if the author of Genesis 1 is meaning to teach us theological lessons about that there's one God who created all the universe, who's, who has authority over sin, then let's take that message and let's not read into Genesis 1 what we wish the author was intending to say. And that goes not just for Genesis, that goes for the whole Bible. And we do that all the time, right? If there's something that you want the Bible to teach, we find a text and kind of kind of wedge it in there. Let's not do that. Let's honor the original authors. Let's honor the Holy Spirit who we believe inspired those authors. And let's take the text for what it's meaning to teach. Okay, this is a principle um, I learned. Anybody, there's some hard, anybody know who Don England is at, at Harding University? And a real, kind of, he's a famous chemistry guy. He's a little older. He was like in his 80s when he was teaching me, but back in the day, apparently he was a real, real famous chemist. He wrote a bunch of MCAT questions and did some organic chemistry research, but he wrote a book, and he, he, these are his three principles, uh, which I think are helpful. So sometimes when you're reading the text, you're going to run into an apparent conflict between science and scripture. So you see, well, this is what you know I learned in my high school physics class or chemistry class, and this is what the Bible teaches. They, they seem to not fall right on top of each other. There is an apparent conflict. So there's three possibilities if this happens. The first is our understanding of science is incorrect. So this would have been true for almost all of the history of Western thought until about 90 years ago. Remember we talked about this last series. Scientists thought the universe was eternal until about 1930, right? And then in 1930 we got new scientific evidence. Now we think the universe came into existence a finite time ago, right? So if you were in 1880 and you were a faithful Christian and you were reading the text and Genesis 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but the scientists say, no, the heavens and the earth were never created. They've always been here. Well, so there's a tension there. Well, what's the problem? Why is there a tension there? It's because our, the understanding of science was incorrect in the 1890s. And so you can see we don't live, certainly our grandkids will look back at us and say something like, Granddad, you're so 2018, right? Like, we don't live in the apex of history, right? We live in a time in history, and future generations will look at us the same way we look at past generations. And so our understanding of science is certainly incorrect. Maybe we're carbon dating wrong. You know, there's all kinds of things that are possibly uh, true, true about how we're incorrectly looking at the natural world that God created. Our understanding of Scripture may also be incorrect. And this is something I think we've got to be open to. Sometimes we've read a text a certain way, even for centuries, and you come back and you say, well, 
is that really like what's taught there? A, 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 an easy example of this is there, so there's this verse in Psalms where the psalmist is praising God and he talks about how he loved us before the foundations of the earth. Before the foundations of the earth. So we read that and how do you read that? What's well, metaphorical? God laid the foundations of the earth and before he made everything, he loved us. There were people who read that text as the earth had a foundation. Like a house has a foundation, the earth had a foundation, and so upon that foundation, God built the world. Well, obviously, that's not consistent with modern science, right? The earth is a globe sitting in a gravitational relationship to the sun. It's not on a foundation. And so what, there's a conflict there between the earth being on a foundation and science saying that the earth is not a foundation. What was the resolution of that conflict? Well, our understanding of Scripture was incorrect, right? And so we need to be humble enough when we read a text to say, I'm not, the, I'm not God. I could be reading this the wrong way. And the third thing is that there's possibly some kind of resolution that you can't quite see. So you see this all the time in archaeology. You'll say there'll be some king listed in the Old Testament that lived at this certain date. And so the skeptical uh, historian will say, look, the Bible dated this king wrong. And then 30 years later, we'll find a coin often like buried underground somewhere that has a date for a different king with the same name that lived at the same time. And so the resolution is... Well, there was two kings by the same name that lived 50 years apart. And so that's happened like five or six times in the history of archaeology. So that, that certainly is possible when we look at, at science. Maybe there's something about quantum mechanics or whatever scientific question you have that we don't just totally understand yet. But as we understand it better, we'll find uh, the, the synchrony. Okay, and then finally, most importantly, Genesis is teaching things that are much more important than science. So please don't make the mistake this week and next week and really through the whole Torah series of getting caught up in kind of these scientific, uh, is the Bible true, how does this fit in with a modern view questions, because if you kind of get hung up there, you'll miss what is really being taught, which is a lot more important than is the, is the earth several thousand or several million or several billion years ago old. It just, that just doesn't really matter, because the truth is, what Genesis is teaching is trying to prepare you to live, not, it's trying to prepare you not to understand what happened several thousand years ago, but it's trying to prepare you to live for eternity, right? And that's a lot more, because 10 billion years from now, we can still be contemplating these questions because we're going to exist. You're a forever person. And so don't miss that and kind of get caught up in the minutia. There's something a lot bigger going on here. Okay, so all that being said, here's a six-minute video that tells the story of Genesis 1 through 11 really better than I can tell it. So we'll watch this video, and then uh, I'll come up, and we'll try to see if we can kind of put some principles together. If you want to, um, Kyle and Eric work together to have these awesome sheets printed out. So those sheets kind of tell the same story the video is telling, so you can kind of follow along. Exactly that happens, of course, that's where all the debates come. But he takes a dark, 
watery chaos, and he turns it into a beautiful garden where humans can, can flip. That sounds nice. It does sound nice. In fact, seven different times God says of all that he's made that it's good. And this is where we meet the first human characters in the Bible, Adam and Eve. They're, they're both individual characters, but they're also representatives. Adam is the Hebrew word for humanity, and Eve is the Hebrew word for life. And he created them in his image. In other words, humanity reflects, or is meant to reflect, the, the, the creativity, the goodness, and character of the creator out into the world today. And they're supposed to reproduce and make cultures and neighborhoods and art and gardens and, and everything else. But he gives them a, a moral choice about how they want to go about building this world. And this is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. And he tells them, don't eat of the fruit of this tree or you will die. What's that all about? So until now, God has been the one defining and providing what is good. And so God is the one with the knowledge of good and evil. But now this tree represents a choice. Will the humans trust God's definition of good and evil? Or are they going to seize the opportunity and define good and evil for themselves? And Adam and Eve eat the fruit. This is the core biblical explanation for that concept of sin, that desire to call the shots myself. It's the inward turn of the human heart to do what's good for me and my tribe, even if it's at the expense of and, and your tribe. And the problem is humans are horrible at defining good and evil without God. And so now that humanity's made this choice, things get really, really, really bad. So Genesis 3 through 11 is like tracing the downward spiral of all, all humanity. So Adam and Eve, they can't trust each other anymore. And so there's a little story about how they were naked and felt fine about it beforehand, but now they feel shameful because all of a sudden Adam's definition of good and evil might be different than Eve's, and so they hide from each other. Then there's another story of temptation. Cain is jealous of his brother Abel, and he gives in and kills him. There's a story right after Cain about a guy named Lamech, and all we know about Lamech is that he accumulates wives like property, and he sings songs about how he's a more violent, vengeful person than Cain ever was, and he's proud of it. Things get so bad with the human race that we see God decide to just wipe us out. Yeah, we typically think of the flood story as about God being angry, but it actually begins with God's sadness and grief about the state of his world. And so out of his passion to preserve the goodness of his world, he washes it clean with the blood. But there's a glimmer of hope. He, he chooses Noah and his whole family, and he saves them on this boat. Yeah, don't forget about the animals. Right, and the animals. So Noah and his family are going to reboot all of humanity. I mean, he must be a pretty great guy. But this is the story most people don't know because it's kind of weird, is that Noah gets off the boat and he plants a vineyard and he gets totally plastered. And then something sketchy happens in his tent with his son. It's a tragic story. So from here, humanity grows again. But things are as bad as before. And the last story is the famous story of the Tower of Babel. And in this story, you have all of the nations uniting together to use this new technology they have, the brick. And they want to make a name for themselves and build this big city with a huge tower that will reach up to the gods. But God knows that this city will be a nightmare. And so in his mercy, he scatters them. 
And all of these stories, they're underlining the same basic idea. When humans seize autonomy from God, when they define good and evil for themselves, it results in a world of tragedy and death. And this leaves you wondering, is there any hope for humanity? Yes, yeah, there is. It's the very next story that answers that question. It's the beginning of God's mission to rescue and restore the world. Hey there, this is Ken. This is John. All right, watch well, Tim and John. So there's the uh, the poster you got. I think I mean it's really cool. I appreciate Kyle and Eric getting those out. And so I think if you want to look at it, it could be helpful to you. Bring it back next week, I guess, if you want, because Kyle will talk about the second half of Genesis. Okay, so here's just kind of basically what they said there. So Genesis really can be understood in two parts. 1 through 11 is God in the whole world. 12 through 50 is God in Abraham's family. And so we're going to make a few comments about 1 through 11 with the time we've got left. So the stories are interesting. There's some good moral points there. I think there's four overall theological points in Genesis 1 through 11 that the story is, this, these stories are meant to convey. The first is that God is creator. The second is that we're made in God's image, the Imago Dei. The third is that human sin leads to separation. Bad stuff happens with sin. And the fourth is that God responds to sin with justice and with grace. Okay, so God is creator. So Genesis teaches that God stands above and apart from his creation. This would have probably been the most important part of Genesis 1 to the original audience, right? So Genesis 1 is written into a culture where there's competing myths about creation. And all of these myths have stories of multiple gods creating the world and gods who had both good and bad qualities. So the, the point of Genesis 1 and, and Genesis 2 is, no, 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 one God created the universe and he is good and just. That is the, like the, the I think the original readers, are, I, I, I guess I shouldn't say I don't think, some of these commentaries of people smarter than me say that that is kind of the take-home message for the original audience that Genesis 1 and 2 was meant to convey. Okay, so Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the, and the earth. Maybe or one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. So as our creator, God has authority over us. That's a key part of Genesis. Who decides good and evil? God. When we try to decide good and evil, what happens? Bad things happen. Separation happens. When we try to be the authority of good and evil, bad things occur. So God is our authority. He knows what's good for us. He created you. He knows what is going to bring you joy, what's going to bring you happiness, what's going to lead to the flourishing of you and your family and your children. He designed you. So not only does he have authority, but he knows what's good for you. So you can trust his authority. And third is that he's worthy of our worship. So a God who, who could create, who has authority over you, and, and um, delivers that authority with goodness is worthy of our worship. That's why we came to church this morning. One of the reasons was we wanted to worship this God together. Okay, and then God's call of man to work came before the fall. This wouldn't be a central point here, but I think this is like huge 2018, our culture. So we are supposed to work, right? So work, let me just specifically talk to men. You are supposed to work. The call of men to work is not a product of the fall, right? So it's not like sin happened, now men work, right? No. Before the fall, God put Adam in the garden and said, work and keep the garden, right? 
So part of what it means to be a man is you work and keep your garden. You work hard to honor God. You work hard to take care of your family. We don't sit at home and play video games. We don't stay in our mom's basement until we're 35 years old, right? If you want to live out God's creation for you, you work, right? So that's biblical. That's right from the very beginning. Being, being a worker is part of what it means to live out um, who you are as God's creature. Okay, second. Genesis teaches that humans are created in the image of God, which conveys both worth and responsibility. Okay, so this is really the kind of the pinnacle that Christian social teaching turns around, right? So let's just think about it. Just, let's pause just for a, a couple minutes to think about this. Why is racism so evil, right? Why is it so evil? Well, the reason it's so evil is that every person on the planet is created in the image of God with equal and infinite worth. And so for us to judge different people based on stupid things like how much melatonin or melanin they have in their skin is, first of all, ridiculous, but it's also an offense to, to believing that our good God placed in every human being the Imago Dei. Every human being is created in the image of God. And so racism is ridiculous. There's no place for racism in a worldview that believes that God placed in every human heart the Imago Dei. So that's one of the reasons reading these texts are so important, because it's not just applies to ancient Israel. It applies to us. There's lessons here about what it means to be a human that matter today. So these are th- there's three times in, the, in Genesis 1 through 11 that, that God talks about being made in the image of God. Interestingly, right here, God talks about murder. Why is murder wrong? Murder is wrong because every creature is made in the image of God. That's, that's the reason we as Christians should believe that murder is wrong, because this person has infinite intrinsic worth created in the image of God, and so killing them is sinful. We don't, we don't destroy people made in the image of God. So humans are distinct from the rest of creation as they have been given the Imago Dei. An important ethical thing that we're going to have to deal with in our lifetime is what does it mean to be human, right? And how much respect should humans receive versus the animal world? And then how does artificial intelligence play into all that, right? And so I don't have all the answers this morning to answer all those questions, but those are questions that are coming. Those will be ethical dilemmas that our children and grandchildren and, and we'll deal with. I'll just say that the principle is that humans are different from the rest of God's creation. We're not highly advanced primates. There's something different, however you understand that humans came to be. A Christian worldview says humans have the imago Dei, they're created in the image of God, and so have intrinsic worth that's different and special and set apart from the rest of the animal world. And five, the worth... um, Okay, so the responsibility to live out the imago Dei comes from the Christian ethics. So the, the... we think, of, we think Christianly and ethically about other humans because they're also made in the image of God. All right. Third, human sin leads to separation. This is what sin does. You sin against your wife, there's going to be at least emotional and intimate separation. There may be physical separation and divorce. You sin against your friends, there's going to be emotional separation. You sin against God, there's going to be separation from God. And so that's a huge key theme in Genesis 1-11. through Sin keeps happening over and over and over. And every time sin happens, there's separation between people, but more importantly, separation between God. So Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Can somebody have their, the Bible open and want to read that? <clears throat> While somebody's turning to it, I'll just kind of keep going. But um, So the thing about eating this fruit from the tree, like, is... Is Genesis trying to teach us about like a healthy diet? Like, 
eat some fruits and not others and that's kind of silly but at, at one level don't you kind of wonder that like why what's the deal with this tree and the fruit and this is kind of a weird story there's certainly symbolism in the story there's no doubt about that the problem is that God is the authority in the created order right so who determines good and evil God and so every time we try to put ourselves in God's place and determine good and evil in our own lives apart from God that's sin and it leads to catastrophe it leads to total chaos. And so that's what's happening in the tree of good and evil. Literally, Adam and Eve are eating from the tree of the good and evil. They're taking on themselves. They're putting within themselves the authority to, turn, to determine what is good and evil. And in some ways, that's the ultimate sin, right? That's the pride that places yourself above God to decide the moral order. That's also the sin with the greatest consequences because you didn't design you. You don't know what leads to your flourishing. In fact, what you want, what I want, is really what's most consistent with kind of my animalistic instincts, which will lead to bad things, will lead to human suffering. And so to live out the fully human life, we have to submit to the authority of the one that created us. Okay, who's got Genesis 3, 1 through 6? Okay, great. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat, from, eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is made in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was there with her, and he ate it. Great. Let me just make a couple comments. So verse 5 there is really a tragedy. So there's just this verse. So Eve is like literally getting there being told lies that will destroy her soul. So I think a good question would be like, what is Adam doing? <laughs> like, literally, the evil one is like lying to his wife, trying to destroy his family. Everything hangs in the balance. Like, this is the moment to be a man. And what is Adam doing? The text says he's standing there. He's standing. Can you imagine? Like, literally, his job to provide and protect his wife, his family, his wife is being told lies that will destroy her, that will destroy humanity. Like, this is, this is his moment. Everything's in the balance. He's just standing there. Like, let that be a charge that just standing there, male pacifism leads to destruction. It does. You, can, you cannot just stand there and let the evil one have your family. You cannot just stand there when lies are being told to you or your children or your wife. You have to step up and lead. And I think that's part of the point of this text. So Eve is being corrupted by the snake, right? And we tend to kind of give Eve a hard time. Like this is like this is a story of Eve's sin and Adam is just kind of kind of a passive participant, which is is, is actually true, but that's the whole problem, right? So part of the point of this text is Adam is just standing there and he needs to be protecting his wife. He, somebody needs to put a shovel on the snake's head, right? Somebody needs to stand up and be a leader here. Okay, uh, who's got Genesis 3, 7 through 13? Wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And 
they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. All right, so that's the story of the fall. Um, so if you, this is what John Piper said, if you choose independence instead of God dependence, you will lose the pleasure of the garden and God with it. Right? So we want to live God-dependent lives. We don't want to make our own rules, be our own authority. That leads to chaos. Okay, so sin leads to separation. So they're separated from the garden. Adam and Eve are intimately separated from each other. I think that's the symbolism of the whole clothes thing. They're, they don't want to be naked in front of each other. They're separate. They're no longer intimate and uh, emotionally intimate. And then there's suffering, right? They have to leave the garden, snake down in your belly. Man, you're still going to have to work, but now your work is going to produce suffering. There's going to be suffering in work. Woman, there's going to be pain during childbearing, right? All these consequences of the fall. The relationship between men, man and woman is distorted. Now there's like a kind of a violent oppression of man on top of woman, right? That's part of the fall. That's, that's a, a sin that we've got to continually fight against. So the point here, this is not just eating an apple, Right? This is a huge, huge moral consequence that all humanity is corrupted with. So theologically, you could understand this as we inherit this sin. So now that Adam sinned, we all are fallen and have this sin. Or you can understand it, we all make the same sin mistake that Adam made. Uh, and so we're all in the same situation because we've all eaten the fruit ourselves too. Either way, the point is we're in the same place. We're separate from God because of sin. Okay, and then God responds to sin. So maybe one of the greatest lies we tell ourselves, we don't preach this or teach this, but we tell ourselves, is God really doesn't care about your sin. God, God really won't care if I do this this one time. God will look the other way. God will just kind of excuse my sin. You cannot read Genesis 1-11 through 11 and believe that any longer. So there's kind of four overall huge sin stories in Genesis 1-11. through 11. I wish we had time to go through each one. But there's the rebellion in the garden, right? So the consequence of that sin, the land is cursed. All these consequences we talked about. But, but also part of God's character that we can't forget is God brings justice on sin, but God also prepares grace. God also prepares grace, even in the very beginning of the Bible, for a redemption and, and a goodness and a reconciliation to happen. So in the garden, there's this verse, you might want to scribble this down when we're out of time, but Genesis 3, verse 15, some people call this the first gospel, the proto-evangelicon. So this is... Um, the God tells, a, God tells a serpent that you will bruise, he will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. So right there at the very beginning, God's saying there's going to come a descendant of Eve that's going to crush your head, that's going to, that's going to make things right. And so that's the grace that's offered even in the original sin. Next is murder. So through murder, you've got this social breakdown, death. Um, Cain goes off and starts his own city. Lamech's there. He's got all these wives. There's all this sin. Um, but then even out of those group of people, Enoch and Noah, these two righteous men, rise up and lead God's people into the next generation. Then the land is corrupted. There's all this sin in the city. So God decides to flood the whole earth. Really a confusing story if we're just kind of honest about it. But I think the, the moral of the story is, is really true and profound. And it's that God does not tolerate sin. Sin will be um, justified one way or the other. And so God... It, 
in this story, destroys sin with the flood. But even out of that, God makes a covenant for something better that He'll never again will destroy the earth. He makes a covenant with creation. And then finally, you've got the story of the Tower of Babel. This, all the people are coming together to collectively form this tower for their own glory. The, the, how great people will look at us and think how great you are. Really a kind of a prideful, collectivist, materialist moment, right? Look how great we are. And so God scatters the people. He says, he says we're not going, I'm not going to allow you to live in cities in a way that brings praise and honor to you because that's not good for you. And so even through the scattering, God blesses the whole world because he creates the nations that will be blessed through the descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so four great themes in Genesis. God is creator. Humanity possesses the Imago Dei. Sin leads to separation, and Yahweh responds to human sin with both justice and grace. So I think that text, um, I certainly didn't do it justice, but Genesis 1-11 through 11 is really rich. So if you got, it takes about 30 minutes to read, so if you've got some free time this afternoon or sometime this week, sit down with it and really, really dive in. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we confess that we want so badly <coughs> uh, to decide how we live, and God, we have instincts and urges that want us to live uh, in ways that are prideful, in ways that are uh, immoral, in ways that uh, bring shame to your name. Uh, God, we just confess that all that is true about us. And Father, we just pray for the sanctifying power of your Holy Spirit to uh, empower us to live something better, to live in a way um, that honors you as our authority. And God, we are so thankful that um, your story doesn't end in Genesis 11, which of course it could have, um, but there's a beautiful story of a family you called to bless the whole world through. And God, we're so thankful for the end of that story and the work of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so I want to thank David for a really fabulous job. I, I spoke with David throughout the week, and I know he spent a lot of time on that and reading a bunch of different resource texts and commentaries, and I really think it's shown through. There's a lot of ways you could approach Genesis 1 through 11, but I think he really approached it in, in a really great way. Um, so there's a few very key things we need to remember from Genesis, and I, I think he did a great job of setting that up. Next week, we'll be back together for Genesis 12 through 50. Genesis is a huge book, so it has 50 chapters, which is pretty crazy. And we're basically going to be looking at the patriarchs and their stories. Uh, so we'll go from Abraham to Joseph, and that's going to be great. So I really look forward to that. Um, and I would say this, the Bible Project, we really just kind of stumbled upon this in researching this topic and this series, and it's amazing. They have a lot of resources that are out there, so I want to thank those guys and that group that do that. It's all nonprofit, which is really pretty amazing. Um, we had the posters in class today, there was the video, um, there's even other videos that we've used to kind of supplement uh, in teaching. And if you want to look at any of that, it's on YouTube, it's very easy to find, and so it's the Bible Project. And there have seven videos for this Torah series. And again, we're going to have seven weeks that we study it. So it, I think there's going to be a part of this podcast where it was like five minutes where a video is going on. If you weren't able to hear that, just I hope you sped through that section. If you want to go watch it, you can look up that uh, on YouTube. So the Bible Project, Genesis 1 through 11. I hope you're being uh, blessed this week. I hope it's a, a good week. It's spring break for a lot of us. It rained today. It was spring forward. So uh, it's a tough day maybe to get out to church. So hopefully you've listened to this podcast and gotten something out of it. Um, if you want to follow us more closely, you can find us on iTunes, the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Highland Bridge Builders. There's a private forum. Just request to join if you're interested in these things. Or you can reach out to me, Kyle Fagala. I would be happy to talk through anything with you, answer any questions you might have or discuss any of these topics further. 
Again, have a great week. We will see you next week as I teach on the second part of Genesis. We'll see you. Bye-bye.